Amen. We'll grab the Bible there that you have. Uh, grab one in front of you or next to you, or if you don't have one, go grab one from the lobby. We got one there. You can have and keep if you don't have one. You need a Bible? As you're turning there, I'm not sure you are aware of what the Chinese government did uh, for several decades when they instituted and mandated a one-child policy. Hear about this? It actually only recently has been removed because it has resulted in some alarming imbalances in their country. If you wanted to have a second kid, you had to fill out an application. If you did not follow exactly what the government told you to do, you could be punished in various ways. One author, May Fong, the author of her memoir titled One Child, the Story of China's China's Most Radical Experiment, says that the application of the one-child policy led to some horrific things in the country. Forced abortions, confiscation of children by the government. But additionally, it led to some things that were not foreseen, that they didn't understand what would happen and could, didn't see it coming. And you think about it, well, it seems kind of obvious what might happen if you force families to choose what gender they might have for their only child that they're allowed to have. Fong writes, when you create a system where you would shrink the size of a family and people, and people would have to choose, then people would choose sons. Fong writes, now China has 30 million more men than women. 30 million bachelors who cannot find brides. That's not good news. They call them the Guang Guan, which means broken branches in Chinese. They are called that because it refers to the fact that they are the biological dead end of their family. Isn't it interesting that a society that does not value children and seeks to limit children finds itself paying a price decades in? That you can almost read the story of a civilization by how it treats its children, by whether it invests in them or not, and whether it cherishes them or not, or whether it ignores them. As a result of decades of China enforcing the one-child policy, the fertility rate of women that is, the average number of children a woman has over the course of her life, the average fertility rate among Chinese women is 1.54. What's interesting, when you look at that statistic, is that the average fertility rate for American women in the 1960s was around 4 Four children per woman in the 1960s. And if you fast forward today, the number is around 1.6. In other words, as one author suggested, we've invented our very own one-child policy. Isn't that fascinating? And you can ask all kinds of questions as to why. Why is it that the fertility rate in American families has plummeted over the last few decades? Why is it, as one article, a different one, suggested that millennials are favoring pet ownership over children? 
Could it be that the follow your heart, achieve your dreams, find yourself lifestyle that our culture has been preaching for decades now isn't exactly compatible with toddlers and dirty diapers and expensive babies? Maybe this whole follow your heart thing has caused us to not really value children very much because they don't really add much in terms of finance and opportunity and uh, self-fulfillment to our lives. I wonder what your attitude toward children is. What do, what do you think about children? What's your perspective on children? And as I mentioned earlier, could it be that the future of our country, the future of our society, the future of our civilization, the future of our church is largely dependent upon how we think about children among us? A papyrus scroll was discovered on June 1st, or not, it wasn't discovered on June 1st, it was dated to June 1st, 1 BC, that is the year before Jesus was born. And it contains a letter that was written from a husband to uh, his wife, and the wife had just given birth, but he was out of town and did not know if it was a male or a female. And in the letter, these words are recorded. The husband said, if it was a male child, let him live. If it was a female, cast him out or cast it out. That seemed barbaric, gruesome even. And yet it's not that far off from what was happening in China for many years. And if we're honest, what's happening with abortions in our very own nation? That every day children are disregarded, some even killed, because of the fact that they might be an inconvenience in our lives. So we have to force ourselves, and the reason we're asking these questions is because the text that we confront or find confronting us this morning is a text about children and how we think about children and how we should relate to children and something that children should actually teach us. And so I ask you again, what do you think about children? What is your response to the potential inconveniences of children? How do you think through your own relationship and role in the lives of the children that are around you? What do we do as a church for them? Do we value them as we ought? And as we begin thinking about these things, could it be that if we devalue children, if the families here devalue their own children, if the church as a whole devalues children, if our society then also devalues children, what could that mean for us as we play this out decades down the road? Where, were, where are we headed if that's the case? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, because this is what Jesus brings up in a very critical moment, a scene in his ministry where the issue of children are brought front and center, and Jesus has this dialogue with his disciples about children. And I found this to be very instructive, even convicting, as I have thought about and studied what the disciples did and what Jesus did, and how those two reactions to the children and responses to the children were like black and white, and they force us to ask ourselves, who are we more like in these scenarios? Are we more like the disciples, or are we more like Jesus? I want you to look at chapter 10 of Mark, 
And we're going to look, look at verses 13 to 16. Verses 13 to 16. It says, it goes on, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. In this text, I want to point out three things. We're going to look at three points, three headings to kind of get our arms around this text. We're going to see first the inconvenience of the children. Second, we're going to see the value of the children that Jesus places upon them. And third, we're going to notice the example of the children and what Jesus teaches that we could actually learn from children. And so let's start first with the inconvenience of these children. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, and they, the they is probably referring back to the crowds that had been following Jesus around wherever he has gone. Uh, So if you follow us through Mark, you realize that there's this group, it's almost mob-like at times, it's trying to gather in on Jesus. And here now, this crowd is bringing children to him. The children mentioned here, the Greek word is paidon, and it could be referring to a child anywhere between infancy up to a 12-year-old. In fact, that that Greek word is used to describe the the little girl in chapter 5 who is a 12-year-old. She's a paidon, she's a child. It's a general word. We know, though, that these children were younger, uh, probably closer to the infant side of things because For one, Luke, in his parallel account, uses a different word that explicitly means infant. And also, if you look down at verse 16, Jesus is actually picking these children up and blessing them so they're small enough children to be picked up and put into the arms of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's blessing them that way. So they're little ones. These probably probably would be uh, some infants that are so little they couldn't talk yet. Toddlers that are maybe just learning to walk or maybe haven't even yet learned to walk. They're not even verbal yet. The little ones running around, you can't quite communicate with them. They're wobbly. They're, they're easily, you know, confused about life. They cry a lot. They want their food. Their diaper's dirty. These are the ones that we're just being described here. This is probably not the older group. This is probably the small side of children. And it says there in the text that the children were being brought to Jesus that he might touch them. That he might touch them. That is to say that the people that were bringing their children to Jesus had heard something of Jesus. And if Uh, They had heard things of Jesus. What had they heard? They probably had heard that Jesus had healed, that Jesus was able to heal leprosy. He did that with a touch, that he was able to cast out demons, and he did that by his voice of command, that Jesus was a healer, that Jesus had taught, and that Jesus was well-known as a miracle worker, that he had fed the thousands of people at various points in his ministry. And so these parents are considering what they've heard about Jesus, and they say, I got this little one, and I'm going to do all I can to help this child 
child. And so they're going to go find Jesus and they're going to bring their children to Jesus that he might touch them. There's no indication in the text, at least, that the parents that are bringing or the people that are bringing the children to Jesus knew that he was the Messiah, believed that he was the Son of God. None of that is clear to us. They might have. They might not have. We don't actually know. All we know is that they knew of the power of Jesus and they wanted their children to get a little bit of that power or healing or blessing, whatever it might be. What we do know is that in those days it was common for rabbis to bless children and for people to bring their children to rabbis that the rabbi might pray for the children. So that is probably the most likely thing that's going on here. They had heard of the rabbi Jesus. He's been incredibly popular. He's been able to do miracles. And now parents are bringing their little children to Jesus. Now, this is exactly what parents should do, right? To bring your children to Jesus is exactly what these people who are bringing their children to Jesus should have been doing. Uh, If Ahad at all, the right understanding of what Jesus has said about who he was, they would understand that the most sane thing to do for your child would be to do what you can to help them know Jesus, to bring them to Jesus. And that is what they were doing here. They were bringing their kids to Jesus. And let's just note this. It's going to become even more clear. Are they wrong to do this? Is it bad to do this? The answer, of course, is no. This is the right thing for them to do. Now look at what the disciples do. The disciples were inconvenienced by these children. The disciples are very inconvenienced by these children. They were bringing children to them that he might touch them. And what did the disciples do? The disciples rebuked them. They rebuked the children. A strong word. That word rebuke is a powerful word. This word is used to describe how Jesus cast out the demon. Remember in Mark chapter 1, it says he rebuked the demon and the demon was cast out. Uh, It's the same word that was described or used to describe what Jesus did to the storm. When the storm was raging and they're on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus, it says he rebukes the storm and the storm immediately goes away and the water becomes calm and the wind stops blowing. It's suddenly now perfectly peaceful. Why? Because Jesus rebuked the storm. That idea of rebuke is brought up in the epistles that leaders who are facing false teachers or people who are falling headlong into sin, they are meant to be rebuked strong word. They need to be corrected. They need to be told what they're doing is wrong and then taught how to do the right thing. (laughs) The disciples rebuke the children, or sorry, the parents of the children who are bringing their children to Jesus. In other words, the disciples were so convinced that what they were doing was the right thing, that it was not good that these parents should be bringing their children to Jesus, that they felt they had the obligation, perhaps responsibility, and even authority to say, nah, you're not allowed here. You need to head somewhere else. I rebuke you. I correct you. Send the kids somewhere else. We're not taking them. In other words, let's start thinking about what's going on with these disciples, what's going on in their hearts. They were clearly not aligned with the heart of Christ. You see that? They're clearly not aligned with the heart of Christ. What what does Jesus want? He's going to say, hey, bring them to me. I want them. Don't hinder them. Let them come to me. And the disciples clearly are not aligned with that. They're the ones saying, no, I'm not going to let you in. I'm not going to let you close to Jesus. 
And here's the fascinating thing that you've been with us through the book of Mark. Unless you're new today, you maybe not have heard all the other times we've been studying and we've come to see that the disciples are, are not quite lining up with Jesus' idea of how things should go. You've been following this? Uh, just a few chapters earlier in chapter 9, there's a guy who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus for Jesus as a ministry of Jesus. And do you remember what the disciples did? They shut him down. They tried to stop him from doing that. And Jesus has to rebuke them then. And just prior to that section, in fact, if you want to turn back, you could see it. Uh, it, it kind of highlights how hard-hearted the disciples were in chapter 9. Look at verse 36. After teaching the disciples about the necessity of being a servant of all in verse 35, it says in verse 36, and he took a child, I mean a literal child, he picks that child up, puts him in the midst of them, and it says, and taking him in his arms, here's another similarly small child that he could take up in his arms, and he says to his disciples, listen, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It's almost as if the disciples weren't paying attention. I mean, it is the literal command. Hey, look at this. See this? You know, eyes up here? Baby, watch this. If you receive a child in my name, it is as if you're receiving God. It is as if you're doing these kind things to Christ himself. Hey, watch this. And then not one chapter later, they're, they're in the very next section. Here we have these disciples being confronted with children. And what are they doing? Are they receiving the children? No, they are not. They are pushing the children away. It's almost mind-boggling. It's like they weren't paying attention in class. And now the test shows up and they're like, uh, what are we supposed to do? I thought he said rebuke them. I mean, they completely missed it. It's completely the opposite of what Jesus had clearly taught them to do. Why are they doing it? We're going to deeper. We're going to get deeper into, I think, what's going on in their hearts. But at the very basic observation level, what's going on? We see clearly they don't value children the way Jesus does. They don't value children the way Jesus values children. If the disciples' hearts were lockstep with Jesus's, if the disciples' hearts were pulsating with the same love as their master and Messiah, Jesus, what would they have done with those children? I tell you what, they wouldn't have rebuked them. They would have invited them right in. We have to stop and ask ourselves, is there in any way, in any degree at all, that we find ourselves acting, thinking, or feeling like these disciples? Children are inconvenient, uh, children are, are not as important to the other people. There, there's lots of people who want Jesus' time, and these children are, are not very high on the list of the priorities here, so we got to make sure that they get pushed aside so we can make time for the important people, because the important people, you know, Jesus needs to spend more time with them. I mean, it's almost as if the disciples are playing the role of the bouncer here. They're like, okay, who gets Jesus' time? And I'm only going to let in the people who are the most worthy, right? The, I'm going to let in the people who maybe get, we get the best ROI, the best return on investment. If, you know, you come in and, and you can 
prove that you've got like the worst case of leprosy here, then I'm going to let you in so you can be healed and you can see the power of Jesus. Or, you know, maybe you're a high up leader and we want to get your influence and so we'll let you in as well. I don't know what's going on. All we do know is that for whatever reason, they devalued children. In fact, I know for a certainty that the Jews of this time did not value children as highly as they ought to have. The children had no society uh, or or no status in society. They were often ignored. And and when you think about what's going on in the society, you think the Pharisees were kind of the ruling elite of the Jewish culture of that time. And they were all about a works righteousness religion. And if that's your measure of the value of a person is how much they live according to the law, well, the children have no status whatsoever. They don't care about the law, these little babies. They can't keep the law. They can't prove that they've studied it. They they don't understand all the ins and outs of it. To to a Pharisee, a a child was just not all that important. They hadn't proven themselves. They hadn't earned anything. They hadn't climbed the ladder to attain a sort of elite status in the society. And so the disciples had probably imbibed some of that cultural understanding of children. And so when the children were brought to Jesus, they rebuked Jesus. Those who are bringing them. I wonder if you think of children that way. That they're not all that important. That it's not really up to us to bring them to Jesus. That we kind of hope they figure things out on their own. And man, they're really inconvenient. They get in the way of the important things we have to do. The things that really matter. Children can't really contribute to the very important things that we're doing with our lives. So why would we invest in them? You know, let's focus on the people who can really pay us back. Let's focus on the people who can offer us something. Let's get those people here. I wonder if there are parents who aren't sharing the gospel with their children because they don't think that their, parents, their kids will appreciate it or understand it. Or parents who have no form of family worship or family discipleship. They're not really investing in their children. They're just kind of hoping that their children figure it out while they invest their lives in all the other important things that they're doing. Children are just not as important as those other things. I wonder if there are men here who aspire to leadership. They want the position, perhaps up front, perhaps recognized perhaps in a a title or an office of the church. But they don't spend and won't spend any time with children because they feel that that's just below them. I wonder if any of us are harsh to children, hurtful to children. God forbid any of us abuse a child. Jesus, very clearly here, we're going to see it, Very boldly here, he has an issue with these disciples who are rebuked, or he rebukes them because they're rebuking the ones that are bringing these children to Jesus. I mean, Jesus gets, and the word is right there in the text, he gets indignant that somebody would have the audacity and the gall to hold back a precious child from meeting Jesus. I remember just as a story to kind of illustrate how our life together can, uh, as a church family, how our 
our influence can extend to the second generation, the generation underneath us, without us even really knowing how it does. I remember as a child, uh, I had done something wrong in church. I can't remember what it was. It was something stupid and foolish, I'm sure, because I can remember clearly. While I don't remember what I did, conveniently, you know, blotted that out of my memory, but I, I do remember being scolded by an older man in the congregation. I remember him getting down in my face, wagging his finger at me, and telling me all the things I did wrong and why it was bad. And I remember from that day forward being terrified of that guy. I didn't want to see him in church. I wanted to avoid him. I would want to walk this way if he was that way. And you know what? I grew up and I got to know that man. He was actually a really good guy. I really liked him. But man, in the moment as a child, I was impacted. And I wonder, I can't help but wonder, if that man had in that moment where I had done something admittedly foolish, if he in that moment had come alongside with graciousness, with a tender hand that he was perhaps more instructive and fatherly with his approach to me, a wayward kid, he probably could have won my heart forever. And yet, there was a negative impact. And I could have handled it differently, I'm sure, as a kid. I could have thought through that differently, but I was a kid. And I just think about how the adults, the grown-ups in the room, have an influence on their children, on the other children around them, and that we can say and do things that can stick in a child's minds for, listen, their entire lives and shape them in profound Ways that we could be people unintentionally like the disciples that are keeping them from seeing the love of Christ, the heart of Christ, the tenderness of Christ. Uh, we, we, we can act in such a way that we are not Christ-like, and because we are not Christ-like, we are actually convincing the children that Jesus may not actually be all that he says he is. Could we be like the disciples hindering the children? I want us to really consider that this is so valuable to Jesus that the inconvenience of children to these disciples, I don't want to bash them because I wonder if their heart could be found in our own hearts. Their attitude could be present in our own attitudes. Their posture could be present in our own posture toward children. Unintentionally. I mean, think about the disciples here. Did they hate children? Like, like what are they doing? It's like, I hate children. We are... We, we hate children, and because of our official doctrinal position of hating children, we are not going to let these children come to Jesus. You, you know what? They thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were doing something good. They were probably thinking, you know, Jesus is busy. He's a very important rabbi. We've got to protect his time. And so let's, let's just make sure that he's not being run ragged by all these people who want to see him. And Jesus rebukes them for this. And so let's look to the value of children. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Strong word again. It's almost as if Jesus is now going to rebuke the rebukers. He is angry with them. I mean, this word conveys the idea of he's irritated with the way these disciples are handling the situation. They are not handling it the right way because their heart is not aligned with his own heart. 
And so he has to correct them, and he speaks to them. An imperative voice here, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the children of God. Let them come to me. Stop hindering them. It made Jesus angry. I love looking into the texts that show us the inside of the heart of Christ. And I love seeing when the writers of Scripture include descriptive words like this, that Jesus, our Lord, got indignant at these guys. What does that say about him? Listen, whenever you encounter any passage of Scripture that talks about Jesus' anger, or even the anger of God, the wrath of God, you always have to understand that the wrath of God or the wrath of Christ is correlating to something that he loves. Okay? The wrath of God is always correlating to something that he loves. It is aroused because he is a God of love. God is angry at sin. Why? Because he loves righteousness. God is angry with idolatry. Why? Because he loves his own glory and believes it should be the center of the universe, as it should. God is angry, as we've talked about the last several weeks, with divorce because he loves marriage. You can go down the list. Why is Jesus angry with these disciples? Why is he indignant? What does it reveal about what Jesus loves? It reveals that he loves children, that he loves them, that they're precious to him, that he desires their company, that he wants them there. He is angry with the disciples because they're doing something that is so antagonistic to the heart of Christ and the mission of Christ. He loves children. And so if someone or something will get into the way of those children coming to meet him, he is indignant. He loves children the little children. In fact, look at verse 16. It says what he does. It says he, he took them into his arms. Just picture this. Uh, the king of the universe. The glory of uh, the son of God incarnate walking among us. Uh, the king should bow and tremble before him. The most important people on the planet should get on their knees and recognize his majesty. And here he is focusing on a little child who maybe can't talk, who probably can't walk, and he takes them up into his arms. Such a tender and gentle scene here. And it says he took them in his arms and he blessed them. The word for, for bless there is katalogeen which is a compound, it has the, the prefix kata, which emphasizes the word. And so he's describing Mark's word here. It, it's not just that he blessed them. It's a, the idea of a fervent, emphatic blessing. It's as if Jesus takes these precious children into his arms and he begins fervently blessing them. He begins fervently praying for them. So tender is his affection and love for children. He says, come, take, I want to take you into my arms. I want to pray for you. I want to bless you fervently. He loves the little children. We sing that song as children in our Sunday schools. We sing that song to our kids. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. Isn't that a song that we sing? And it sometimes can become so childish that we think, well, I don't know if it's true or not. It's just one of those kiddie songs we sing. But the biblical reality, you know what? It is true that he loves children. They're precious to him. They're valuable to him. He invites them in and he prays for them and he wants them around them. And I just want to pause real quick and I want to talk to children this morning. Maybe you've not been paying attention up till right now. You heard the peach just say, I want to talk to the children. I want to I wanna just, just pause for a second. If you're still living at home, whether you're really little and 
or, or you're just under your parents' authority, still living in the home, I want to say something. Isn't this remarkable about our Savior? Isn't it so amazing that the most majestic person, the most important person, he loves you and he wants you. And as he did with these children, he invited them in. He wasn't too important that he wanted to shoo you away. Maybe sometimes you feel like grown-ups shoo you away, like you're not all that important. And isn't it remarkable that Jesus would never do that to you? That he loves you. He wants to bless you, and he invites you. And let me remind you, child, if you're here because your parents brought you here, you got in the car, you drove along with them, and now you're here listening, and your parents, you know, they, they come and they sing the songs and, and they, you know, the offer goes around and they put their money in, but you don't really do that and, and you don't really even know the songs. You're just kind of coming along and just participating. You're just kind of participating because you're a good child and you're obeying your parents. I want to tell you, you know what? Just because your parents are trusting the Lord doesn't mean you don't need to. You know, just because your parents are really involved doesn't mean you just get off the hook and your parents are doing it for you. I would encourage you, children, to understand that you right now can come to Jesus. That if you understand that your sins are real and that they are hurtful to God, they offend God, that you can repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and come to him and he will not cast you out. He will invite you in. He will forgive your sins. He will bless you. And so don't just think that because my parents got it all under control, that you don't need to come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus. He invites children to him. He loves when children come to him. So come to Jesus and trust that he lived and died and rose so that you might be saved. That is such good news. And parents... Let's be the first ones to continually bring our children to Jesus. It honors Jesus. Jesus valued children. He loved children. On that note of of, uh, valuing children, it's important to recognize that wherever Christianity has gone, it's lifted the value of children. You notice that? Christians are the ones who started many of the orphanages around today. Who started some of the hospitals that take care of children? Who started a lot of the adoption agencies that make sure there's an option for women that are not sure to do with their pregnancy? A lot of times it's Christians. Why? Because they love the Lord. They know that people are made in the image of God and they want children to be safe. They want to care for children. They volunteer for foster care. They choose to have their babies rather than abort them. This is what Christians should always do because we love our children value our children we want to honor our responsibility to care for children in the uh, in the bible you you will see it again and again that the people of god are called to care for children it's it's always coming up in fact the probably the most popular one in the old testament is in deuteronomy chapter 6 you're probably familiar with this. When, when God says to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your might. And then he says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house. 
Or when you walk by the way. Or when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God didn't think it was a waste of time to train children, did he? He said, day and night and all through the in-between. You ought to be, if you have children around you, teaching, instructing, talking about God and truth and who they are and who God is and how to honor Him and what the Bible says and how to live in obedience to it. That's part of the way that the next generation was intended to be raised up in the truth. Then you fast forward when when, uh, Moses is describing the Feast of Booths in Deuteronomy 31 of all places. It says, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord... Your God, at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Listen to this. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones. Huh. And then they were to read for an extended period of time the law. In other words, God thought that the most important place for those children to be on that day was in the assembly listening to the word of God. That they were to be invested in, to be taught. I wonder, are we valuing children as we ought? Yes, our children, if you have children in your household. But children around you. Children in our community that you say, it is part of my responsibility to ensure that they are seeing in my life holiness. And that they're being taught with my words the truth. Psalm 78, we will not hide them from our children, but to tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established as a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, perk up fathers, he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children children so that they should set their hope in God. That is a parenting description right there to raise your children in the truth so that they can hear it and then raise up their own children. Are we valuing the children God has put into our life as Jesus did that when they're around he says well I want you near me. I want to bless you. I want to be a part of your development to help you understand the truth and walk in obedience to it. You know, sometimes, as we were talking about earlier, this can be really difficult for us to value little children. And I think part of the reason we, it's so difficult is because we, we, we tend to think of our relationships as transactions. Follow me. We tend to have a lot of relational, transactional friendships. We think of relationships as transaction, meaning that if you can offer me something I want, I will be much more obliged to be your friend. If you can offer me a a status increase, you know, by hanging around you, I can feel better about my status, I'm going to want to hang around with you more. If you can offer me a sense of belonging, if you can offer me pleasure, if you can offer me a career advancement, if you can offer me something, I'm going to be your friend. You know the problem with that is? It's not love, it's you're using people. And sometimes we have relational friendships, relational marriages, relational relations with our own children. We value them only to the degree that they can scratch our backs. We invest in them only to the degree that they can do something for us. 
And if you can do something for me, then I'll care about you. But if you have nothing to offer me, why should I invest my time? That is the sad reality. But if we're honest, so many of our relationships are merely transactions. And God is not a transactional God. And Christ is not a transactional Savior. Christ does not love people because of what they can offer him in return. Christ is a free and ever-flowing fountain of love. Love is inherent from within him. He loves freely people who cannot pay him back, who cannot offer him anything in return. And that's why I think Jesus' heart is particularly drawn to children because they cannot do anything to earn what he offers. He loves freely. And here's an interesting point that we sometimes forget. Do we understand that Jesus calls us to love like he loves? And therefore that our hearts should be drawn to the people who cannot pay us back? That we should be particularly gravitating toward people who cannot pay us back? In fact, I'll show you where Jesus explicitly teaches this. Luke 14, verse 12 to 14, Jesus says, When you give a dinner or a banquet, think of your next Thanksgiving party, Christmas party, the people you are going to invite. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. (laughs) Jesus is saying, here's a problem. They might want to pay you back. Verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Christ was drawn to children because they could not pay him back. Christ is drawn to people who recognize that they have nothing to offer. And Christians in the imitation of Christ should be drawn to people like the lame, like the blind, like the crippled, like the poor, and I say like little children who cannot pay you back, understanding that you are not seeking a reward in this life. You will be repaid, but not in this life, but at the resurrection. You are to invest in eternity by pouring your life out in ways you never see a return in this life. That will radically turn upside down the way many of us live. And so the question becomes, do you love children even though they cannot pay you back? They cannot offer you much. Do you have a concern for them? Do you have a compassion for them? Are you tender toward them, the ones that are your own and the ones you find around you? Do you show patience with them when they are inconvenient? Do you love them when they don't return the favor? When it's hard, there's no man more masculine than Jesus. And here he is, tenderly taking these little babies into his arms, happily blessing them, praying for them, loving them. I believe it with all my heart that godly people pay attention to children. I was at the uh, seminary back a number of years ago that I was attending and I had to go up to the office to 
uh, do some paperwork and get my classes all figured out. And on that day, I brought my daughter, Emma, who at that point was about two years old. And she had this frilly pink dress and a big old bow on her head. And she didn't have any hair, so she needed to wear these things and, you know, cover that. And she had this really cute little thing that she was wearing. And I, I went up there and I was holding her in one arm and I'm trying to fill out paperwork. And, and um, suddenly behind me, the doors burst open and in come walking in all these important looking men suits and ties and this is the administration of the seminary this is the 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 staff uh, this is these are the the professors they're all coming in very important very much you know looking to where they had to go they, they all kind of go charging past me very clearly heading somewhere in the back to have some sort of important meeting and they're all heading back there and I'm just kind of sitting here like as they walk just right by me I'm recognizing some of these guys some of the big names uh, at the seminary some of these upper kind of level kind of people um so I'm there just kind of observing, just kind of seeing what's going on. And, and the, the last man comes up. He's the back of the group, and he comes up to me. And everyone else just barged right past me. He comes up and pauses and looks at me. He makes some joke about letting girls into the seminary. And we, we laugh together, and he smiles, and he takes her hand. And, of course, Emma gets bashful as he hides and digs her face into my shoulder. And I never forgot that. That, that was John MacArthur. It was one of the biggest names in evangelicalism, one of the most important men in our generation, one of the, the people who I've been shaped by, that the seminary's been shaped by, the, the, the master's university has been shaped by. And I just was fascinated by this reality that there were all these important people just rushing past me, and I don't want to blame them, but I do want to point out the fact that this man that was big and well-known, whose name most people recognize, he was the one to pause and to stop and to give notice to my two-year-old child. And it stuck with me. And I was settled in my mind at that point that godly people pay attention to children. Godly men, I don't care how important you are at work, how big you are on the ladder, how, how tall you've grown in terms of how far your shadow reaches at your work and how many people tremble in your presence. If you don't love children, you're not like Christ. If you don't want to care for the, the babies, if you don't want to invest in the next generation, I'm not saying you've got to be in the nursery every single Sunday or else you're in sin, but there's got to be this desire and this love and this tenderness and this gentleness that enables you to associate with the lowest people that would include little children. And on that note, I think just by way of application, I want to thank all the people here who serve in a nursery. I praise God for you. I praise God for the hours you put in beforehand, the way you sacrifice so that you're back there serving our little ones, and you're there shaping little hearts and little minds in ways that are incalculable. I firmly believe that the first five years of our life are sometimes the most formative. We come to understand what this world is like and whether you can trust grown-ups and what authority should be all happening and before we're even understanding how to talk. And so these People in the nursery, they're not just doing some babysitting. They're shaping hearts and minds. This is significant. This is valuable. And so all of you, I praise the Lord for your willingness to submit to that work and do that work and serve our church and serve our children. And those children may grow up and not remember your name. In fact, count on it. But God sees your labor. And your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And they cannot pay you back. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It will all be worth it. 
to invest in people who cannot pay you back. That's what Christ did. Let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the children of God. And that is our last point that we're going to get at. We saw that the children were potentially inconvenient. We looked at how Jesus valued the children. And here we're going to see the example of the children. Verse 14, I want you to look again at verse 14. To such belong the kingdom of God. Not only does Jesus value these children because of their preciousness, their helplessness, and he's just drawn to people who are helpless, but he wants to teach something profound to the disciples who are missing the point. To these little ones, to such belong the kingdom of God. Verse 15, truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. Shall not enter it. It is amazing how Jesus can speak such powerful words while tenderly holding a child. The juxtaposition blows my mind. Here he is holding a babe and he's talking about heaven and hell. And the reality of eternal torment of being cast out of the kingdom of God. You see that? Verse 15. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you're not getting in. There's one way into the kingdom. There's one way into reconciliation with God. And it is through Christ. And you can only receive Christ when you humble yourself like a little baby child to receive it. You know, there's one thing that children are way better at than any adult I've ever met. The one thing that they just blow us out of the water. They just surpass us by, by so much. And you know what it is? They're really, really good at receiving gifts. They are, they are the master. They are the experts at gift receiving. Just Christmas time rolls around. They are ready to receive gifts. They are looking forward to gifts. You know what happens when you give a, a, a gift to a grown-up often? It's like we made a little mental note like, okay, I've got to pay that guy back. I've got to do something to make sure, oh, man, he's got me in his debt now. We, we're not very good at receiving gifts. Grown-ups are not as good as children at receiving things. We tend to think that anything we get should be paid for, should be earned, should be merited. We tend to think that if we're going to receive something, we've got to have something in our resume to have earned that thing. But a child thinks no such thing. A gift? Freely given? Man, let me open it. Let me add it. It's free? They don't even caring if it's free or not. To them, it's all free. Of course, you're giving me a gift. It's mine. I'm not paying you back. I don't even have any money. I'm not, I'm not going to calculate the cost. I'm not looking for a receipt. I want this thing. It's free. It's for me. It's mine. That's how kids think. And if you want to get into the kingdom, this is how Jesus says you've got to receive the kingdom. In other words, stop thinking that you've got to pay for it. Stop thinking that you've got to earn it. Stop thinking that it's based on your merit. Stop thinking that God has given you something. Oh, man, that's a pretty big gift. Okay, I've got to calculate the cost of that. And now I'm going to live my life to try to be worthy of this gift that you've given me. Here's how you get into the kingdom of God. You get in like a child. And you say, I'm unworthy. I can't earn this. I'm utterly incapable of doing anything to earn a standing with God. If we're going to talk about earning, here's what I've earned. I've earned the wrath of God. I've earned by my sin eternal torment. That's what I've earned. 
If I am getting to heaven, it is sheer unmerited grace. It is freely given. And it is given to the people who know they cannot and should not try to pay it back. To try to pay it back is a slap in the face of God's grace. You can't pay back grace. Then it's not grace. It's just the wages you've earned. To receive the kingdom the way Jesus is describing here, you receive it as if it's free, as if you've done nothing, as if there's no merit. Because if you have a true and accurate understanding of yourself, you know you cannot merit it, you cannot earn it, you are utterly incapable of achieving it, and you must and can only receive it by faith alone when you take the posture of a humble baby who simply looks to his father knowing my father's good. He cares for me. I trust him. Little babies aren't asking questions. They're just receiving the free gifts of the love of their parents. You see, the disciples had this big problem. Beyond their valuing of children, they've lost sight of the grace of God. And what happens when you lose sight of the grace of God? You start thinking, you've got to earn this, you've got to do stuff, you've got to merit. What starts happening? You know what starts happening is you start doing what the disciples did? You start categorizing people as worthy, unworthy. You lose sight of your abject humiliation before a holy God. You no longer see yourself at the bottom of the totem pole. And you start thinking, oh, yeah, God must have saved me because he, he really wanted my skills. God, God must have saved me because there's some things I've done that other people haven't. And what do you do to the people who haven't done those things? What do you do to the little children? Well, they're not valuable because they certainly haven't done the things you've done. And what do you do to the other Christians around you that maybe haven't attained to the level that you've attained? What do you do? You look down on them. You judge them. Or like the disciples, you don't want to invest in them. Oh, no. Not children, not these marginalized people, not those people who are unlike me, not those people who are still struggling with those sins. Why? Because you've actually begun to construct a new religion, a new religion that's works-based, a new religion where God accepts you because you've earned it, because you're worthy, because you've merited it. That is not the gospel. That is anti-gospel. And if that way of thinking infiltrates the church, it'll kill us, friends. It'll kill this church. What we need is the gospel front and center that the way into the kingdom is abject humiliation before a holy God, looking up to the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived for us, died for us, rose again on the third day, and offers himself fully and completely to anyone who becomes like a child and in faith embraces him. And when we embrace him, we are granted the full and complete righteousness of Christ and all our sins are forgiven, put on that cross, and we then are adopted for all eternity as children. We never grow out of it. We're always children forever. And if you haven't become like a child, you still think that you've got to do something to earn this thing. Humble yourself before a holy God and take Christ as your only hope and receive the kingdom Not like some intellectual or philosopher or some wise guy. No, like a child. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not. To bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There will be no boasting before God. And as a preview of our time in heaven, there should be no boasting in the church of the living God. Because of the things we think we've done. But we should all be like children freely receiving the grace of God as it is, free. Let's pray.
What a privilege, Lord, to be reminded of these truths, because if salvation came by any other way, I know it would be lost. We know that we would have nothing. If salvation was by merit, we'd be cast out. If it was by our worthiness, we would be lost. But when we come to the end of ourselves, we know we can't fix ourselves, and we're utterly and completely dependent on Jesus to save and to cleanse and to forgive and to heal and to transform. We know we will be saved. For those who are not yet saved, Lord, I, and I pray that they would come now, knowing that Jesus has invited them in, that they can take the posture of a child and receive the fullness of salvation this morning. And I pray for those of us who are tempted toward pride and self-righteousness, that we would be humbled, that we would be ready to rethink our, our own standing, that we would become humble and poor in spirit the way you've called us to be. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.